You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Tony Nader sits down with Dr. Keith Frankish to discuss consciousness and the nature of ultimate reality. Is consciousness an illusion, or is the illusion what appears as physical? Dr. Keith Frankish is a British philosopher and writer specializing in philosophy of the mind, philosophy of psychology, and philosophy of cognitive science. He is known for his illusionist stance in the theory of consciousness. Dr. Frankish hosts two podcasts, Mind to Mind and Mind Chat, with philosopher Philip Goff. Dr. Keith Frankish, a great philosopher and writer. He's an honorary reader in philosophy at the University of Sheffield, a visiting research fellow, formerly senior lecturer at the Open University, and an adjunct professor with Brain and Mind program in neurosciences at the University of Crete. His interests lie mainly in philosophy of mind and his particular view, of course, of the fact that phenomenal consciousness is an illusion. It's something that is created by our brain. And he has a, what he describes as a two-level theory of human mind. He has a wonderful podcast uh, with another eminent ph philosopher and thinker, Philip Goff where uh, they discuss from different perspectives what consciousness is and how we can look at it from different different angles what is very interesting is that our podcast our discussions have a title and our title is consciousness is all there is and so we have given consciousness this infinity field of all possibilities going to pure idealism in fact where everything is consciousness and then see how from that consciousness everything emerges and a lot of our participants and discussions that we've had have been along these lines however for truth to be complete and understanding to, to be as wide as possible we're going now to the extreme other side as if of the story where consciousness is not you know all there is, it's not even an emergent quality which suddenly emerged from physical activity, which also Keith defends as something that's not really so plausible, but actually that consciousness is practically nothing uh, on some level, of course. Uh, Keith will explain this to us. And so we, we are now exploring from this other angle of reality what consciousness is. And so really welcome, Keith, it's wonderful to have you. Let me start with the findings that led you into this conclusion before we come to the conclusion itself. Like you have thought about it, you got interested in it, and you analyzed it from different perspectives, and you came to some conclusion. So the conclusion might be definitive conclusion or might be an intuition might be an opinion, a theory, uh, we will get to that. But what are the elements that built up the logic that led you to these conclusions? 
first, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be on your on your podcast and to talk to you about this. Um, I think we're we're both committed to exploring uh, these questions with a with open mind and with uh, with respect for other perspectives. And uh, so it's I'm, I'm very honoured to be to be here speaking to you. Now, how did I come to my view? Well. My background is in, in philosophy primarily. I, I, I do try to read uh, some science, cognitive science, bits of neuroscience, but that's not my expertise. My expertise is in philosophy. And so I approached this by uh, studying the philosophical theories of consciousness. In fact, what really brought me into this field was I worked for the Open University in, uh, in the UK. And uh, one of my tasks there was to write a textbook on philosophy of consciousness. So for that, I had to survey all the different perspectives, the main perspectives in philosophy of consciousness and present them as clearly as I could for the students. And I think this is a really good discipline because trying to explain a position as clearly as you can to people who don't know anything about it forces you to think about it um, in a way perhaps that you hadn't before. And so I thought I, I knew more or less what was happening in, in philosophy of consciousness. And, I sort of read a bit about it, but I never really got deep into it. And so I started really getting into all of the different positions. And I suppose my position had been something like this, that it'd been the, the, the mainstream physicalist position, if you like, that when people talked about phenomenal consciousness, we'll, we can get into what we mean by phenomenal consciousness. Yes, they were, they were identifying something that needed to be explained. And then there were, and then and my assumption was that this could be done in broadly physicalist terms in terms of talking about processes in the brain and we could explain away our sense that consciousness was non-physical in some way but i increasingly find myself unhappy with that mainstream physicalist position as i looked at the different accounts and tried to present them as clearly as i could i found myself feeling oh, that i don't think these really work so it was a dissatisfaction if you like with mainstream physicalist approaches to consciousness but at the same time i wasn't attracted to non-physicalist positions, mainly because they just didn't seem to explain anything. They said, there's this phenomenon here, phenomenal consciousness, and we can get into what that is, because that, that's the crucial issue. Uh, and it's somehow the brain produces it, but we can't explain that in physical terms. So it just emerges. <laughs> it just, at certain point of complexity in neural processing, this light just comes on. And we, all we can do is try to identify when it comes on, <laughs> which processes in the brain make it come on, but how they make it come on, we can't explain. And others were saying, well, consciousness indeed is, is even more fundamental than that. It's a fundamental property of, of all of, of reality. And actually I was rather more sympathetic to that than the idea that it just comes on in brains, because at least that seemed <laughs> consistent as it were, to, to give a more, a more um, uh, elegant picture. But still, I didn't like this because they didn't seem to be going anywhere towards explaining this phenomenon. And I guess I come, my, my father was an engineer, and I come from things with a, an engineering perspective. I want to know how they work. <laughs> and so if, if you show me an, an, uh, an unusual piece of equipment that does something, and you I think, well, how does it do that? I want to know. And just telling me, well, it just does it. That's not enough for me. So. But there's another perspective you see on consciousness. There you see, so I was unhappy with the mainstream physicalist one. 
I didn't, so I didn't like the idea that, that we, I didn't think we could explain phenomenal consciousness in physical terms. I didn't like the idea of just treating it as fundamental, fundamental feature of the world because that didn't explain anything. And so I thought, so there's another perspective, which is maybe we're trying to explain the wrong thing. Maybe we've invented a sort of notion of phenomenal consciousness based on something real. There's something, certainly something happening when we talk about being conscious and having experiences, certainly. But maybe we've kind of created a sort of fiction around this thing as something that is completely unconnected to anything the brain is doing. I mean, it's contingently connected to it in the sense that it occurs alongside things the brain is doing. But it's there's no intelligible connection between what the brain is doing and, and, and this thing. It just, just pops into existence. And we could imagine the brain doing all of its things without this thing, without consciousness. Now, if you conceive of phenomenal consciousness, if you conceive of consciousness in that way as phenomenal consciousness, then of course you're going to have a problem explaining it, but maybe that's because you've built that inexplicability into the very notion of the thing itself. So maybe there's another way of thinking about consciousness, which doesn't exactly deny the existence of consciousness. It denies that that conception of consciousness is a good one. And it says that in that sense, it's an illusion. Uh, and this, of course, the most eminent figure in this, on this perspective, uh, presenting this perspective is Daniel Dennett, who I'm a, I'm a great admirer of for many reasons. And so I thought, well, although Dennett is a very highly respected philosopher and published widely and that doesn't really need my support, I felt that his views hadn't been sufficiently considered. They're often, I found people often just wrote them off and said, oh, he's, he's not really trying to answer, explain consciousness. And so I felt, well, look, this position seems to me interesting. The other ones have problems. This one's interesting. It's been sort of neglected. It's hard to say that when someone like like, like, like Dennett is, is, is advocating, but it's not good enough follow. So let me try and explore that route and see where it goes. Not with any conviction that it has to be the truth, but just because it's, it's an avenue that's not been enough explored. And, and so the way I, I, I like to put it maybe is, and it's a common theme among a lot of people that the way we conceive of the world around us involves an element of illusion. We think of, you know, the table as being solid, but then of course physics tells us that it's not really solid. That if you get right down to the, to the atomic level, it's mostly empty space. So in a sense, the solidity is a sort of illusion. It's one that we are constructing in the way we interact with it. And so I'm kind of, I'm taking that view and sort of extending it even further to our own knowledge of ourselves and saying that maybe our, our, our way of thinking of our own minds is a construction like that. And maybe we've constructed a notion of consciousness that is, makes it seem utterly inexplicable but maybe there are other ways of, of, of thinking about it. And so really that's all I see myself doing is trying to explore that third way that I think has been underappreciated and seeing where it can take us. But I should emphasize, um, sorry, I'm talking a lot, I need to let you, but I should emphasize that what I'm interested in here is consciousness as a psychological phenomenon, as, as, as something that we see in ourselves and in other animals. I'm quite narrowly focused on that. So the idea that we might need to use a, something like a notion of consciousness in a much broader, more fundamental sense, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe we do, but that's 
not the notion really that I'm thinking of. Anyway, I think I've said enough there. I hope that's that's answered your, your first question. Yeah, this is wonderful. It's wonderful. And funnily enough, I have been through the same process. And I think any real seeker of understanding reality and consciousness goes through these steps of trying to see if it's a dualist reality, how the right side talks to the left side and how one side produces the other side if it's a monistic reality. So if it's the physical, how does the physical produce consciousness? And then you have this emergence possibility and, you know, minimal or maximal or whatever, lower level, higher level emergence that you discuss also often in your talks. And how do we get to there? And that causes problems, interactions like this. So one is tending to go towards either everything is physical and energy, and therefore consciousness is a phenomenon in a way, and it happens through this physical reality which leaves a mystery and that's why people wonder about how could it be how could it be how could it be that my love my uh, appreciation of pain of joy of taste which is so intimate and so personal to which i give a meaning is emerging from something mechanical and so there is this still tension that is there in terms of how the physical creates or gives the illusion at least of the non-physical, in, in essence, non-physical. And your answer has been, I mean, in this few moments that we discussed and also in your discussion, is that we can be fooled. We can be fooled by our senses, for example. But the question comes when we are fooled by our senses, we are fooled about what? We are fooled about the reality of the physical. And it is our analysis, our rational thinking, our projection of our consciousness that is analyzing this and coming from one level of understanding of reality, which is the earth is flat and it doesn't move and time and space are set and all of that to a higher level of understanding, which allows us to probe deeper into reality and see that actually the reality that we think as solid and, and, and strong and all that is actually, you know, vanishes in front of our eyes. And we can also come to the conclusion that it's our consciousness somehow that is building that fantasy world and that maybe the illusion is in the physical also. So what do we say about that? Do you, you want to comment on this? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic. I've, I've read your book, and um, Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, is that? Yes, One Unbounded Ocean. One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, yes. Your listeners might be surprised to hear me say this, but I found a lot in it that I warmed to and sympathized with. One thing that you do in, in the book is you show how the conception of the world that we have, the everyday conception of the world, really just is itself a... a an illusion. A conception. A conception. Science is telling us this, that, that as you start to, to analyze um, the structure of the world and break it down into its smaller, you find that all the, the notions that we commonly have about them, things like solidity and ob discrete objects and colors and even things like space and time start to have no application as you get down to the fundamental physical level. And so any notion of the physical 
that is derived from our acquaintance with solid objects bumping into each other around us. That notion of the physical, I agree, is uh, that sort of materialistic, mechanical universe is modern science has dissolved that away like a like, a, like, a, like an acid, I suppose. Yes, I agree. And so it's natural to ask, what's the fundamental? What's what's really at the bottom of this, as you presented as a, as a pyramid? Well, I, I have no idea. We could say this, if you like, we could say there must be something. And we could give it a name. Now, I'm kind of reluctant to use the word consciousness for that, because I tend to think of consciousness as this highly specific ability, highly specific sort of sensitivity and reactivity that we at the large scale have to large scale things around us. So I think of it as something like memory and decision making. It's a, it's a large scale feature of the world, not something that I would expect to find right down there at the fundamental. Now, now there might be something that now the fundamental thing might have certain similarities to it in certain ways it might be and maybe it could be and here's where I'm, I might even go along with it it could be that consciousness is our best analogy for what it is that we can't think of any better word for it than consciousness and so we take that word but as I said before what I'm really interested in is explaining the, the psychological Beautiful. thing and and combating the kind of dualism that is so popular really in philosophical and everyday thinking about consciousness so I'm kind of let me say this, I should have said this earlier. Consciousness is a very tricky word. It's used in many different ways. And because it seems sort of so intimate to us, we all think we know exactly what it is. Beautiful. But I don't think we really know what anything is. I think everything really is a construction and interpretation, including our own minds, yes. which sounds paradoxical because who's doing the constructing? If I say that I am a construction of my own mind, then uh, what is the construction constructing itself? And how does that, in a way, I think it is. So I, I'm very sympathetic to this picture that you present of there being a kind of unity at a fundamental level, a level where individual selves and objects and all the, the categories that we normally use to describe the world all drop out. And there's a fundamental underlying. I'm very sympathetic. Right? In that way, I'm a, a monist, I suppose. Yes. Yes. And what I don't like is the idea that there's a fundamental duality to human nature. So there's, the, there's a private conscious world, and then there's a public world, and we are, we can never really contact. <laughs> yeah. I want to dissolve that. I want to dissolve that notion of this private world constituted by a phenomenal consciousness. I want to see ourselves as much more linked and unified with the rest of nature. And I think that is not a, a wholly different from your perspective. I think so. You, I mean, we are all already on the agreement side rather than the, the agreement. First, the monism, which means that there is one ultimate reality. So aside from consciousness, which is, let's call it a phenomenon on the psychological level, uh, there is an ultimate reality, which actually this is what we are looking for, because the hard problem of consciousness and what is consciousness and the, the Cartesian dualism and the, you know, the Descartes demon and, and others aspects that led to this dichotomy and this also tension has led all scientists and philosophers to think about consciousness, consciousness, consciousness. What ultimately we should be looking at is a complete understanding of the reality of life. What is the ultimate reality, I think? 
And, you know, we can give it a name, it's energy, it's kind of something, you know, is it conscious? Does it have a consciousness? What is consciousness then in that sense? And how does it then produce the reality? So what would be important, I think, in our discussion even today and for every discussion of this field is to define actually what we're talking about. Because sometimes you feel that many Many people sit and think and argue and discuss and they're talking about two different things. And so that's why I, I felt you were clear about defining, you're talking about the psychological phenomenal consciousness. So let's try to define these two things. What is consciousness that we're talking about, one thing. And another thing which is much more complex, ontologically, uh, very historically difficult to answer, what is reality? What is reality? So let's start with consciousness and then see what is reality. Because we've seen that reality already when we mentioned, well, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, the table is solid, but if you look at it from a different perspective, it's emptiness. From a different perspective, it's an interaction of quantum fields. And so, you know, let's try to see if we can define these two aspects, which are fundamental. Great. So we will, these are big questions. Yes. Um, let's, um, I think consciousness, I think the word is used in many different ways. It's, I think etymologically, it's, it's a, it's, a, it's a private knowing. Originally, it could be a, a private knowing among a group of people might have a private consciousness of some plot or something like that or plan. It's knowing together with others. So it's like a conspiracy. But it's come to mean a private knowing in one's own mind. Okay. And in many languages, romance languages at least, the same word is used for what in English we call conscience. Conscience, yeah. Private inner voice of moral duty. So uh, in Greek, it's like that. And then in French, I think most yeah. romance languages. Yeah. So, so it's, it's some kind of private knowledge. That's, that's the, the core idea. But we also use it in, I mean, we talk about somebody regaining consciousness and having lost consciousness. Now, we're not there really talking about what's their private thoughts. We're just saying that they've kind of woken up and are attentive to the world again. They're, they're, they're just their perceptual systems are functioning again. They've come out of a, a, a coma, say. So that's con. We also talk about being conscious of things. I could say I was I was conscious of being late. Where we're not really talking about what's happening in my mind. We're talking about the 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 situation that I was aware of. I was conscious of a face at the window. Uh, we can talk about uh, group consciousness, where it's an awareness of yourself as belonging to a group, um, a social group. So, um, so there are many different notions. One, another central notion is awareness. This is what I was just talking about, being aware or conscious of a face. Awareness. We can ask if a person, say, in an experiment is conscious of a, of a certain stimulus, of a low-intensity flash of light. Were they conscious of it? Did they register it? And, and I suppose we could, ask, we could ask the same question of a machine. Did it register the light in that sense? Was it aware of the light? Did it detect it? So there's detection. We can also talk about self-consciousness, which is something a, a little more elaborate, which is thinking about being aware, very aware of yourself and your own behavior and your own attitudes and your own presence. And so, so there are lots of words all centering around the notion, I think, of knowing. Of um, So and as you say in your book, there is generally presumed here to be a sort of structure of a, a subject who knows 
subject who is aware of something, the thing that they're aware of, the, the thing that they're observing, and the process linking them. Okay. So already we've seen there's quite a lot of different uses. And more recently in philosophy, there's been a rather sharp distinction made originally by Ned Block between two senses in which we might talk about a mental state as being conscious, like a belief or desire or perception. Access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. Now, access consciousness is a dynamical functional notion. The idea is that a mental state is conscious in this sense if the information that it carries is available to other systems in the brain. So if your perception, if you're my perceiving the light over there, if that is access conscious, it means that it's available to other systems. So I can available for me to report it and to think about it and to make decisions about it and so on, to do things with that information, as opposed to information that is perhaps subliminal, that is taken in by my sensory systems, but isn't really made available for use by other brain systems. We do pick up a lot of information in that way, but it only has a a limited influence on our um, responses. So the redness of the tomato is access consciousness or a phenomenon? Well, no, when we, well, uh, so when I'm looking at a, at a red tomato, so my visual cortex is registering this, well, various processes in my visual cortex are being, are being activated and information about the tomato, about its about its color, about its shape, its distance, and so on, is being made available to other brain systems, enabling me to categorize the thing, to say, well, it's round, it's red, it's shiny. Oh, it's a tomato. And so I can do all these categorizations, and then I can use that information, or rather, my brain can use it. It's, it's, we're slipping between talk about what the brain does and what, what I do, which is a, uh, something we need to be careful of. Uh, so I, if I'm, if I, if I want to eat a tomato, I think oh, that's, that's, that would be nice to eat. Or if uh, somebody asks me what's over there, I can say, oh, it's a tomato. And so I can use all that information about the color, the shape, the size, the distance, and so on of the tomato. But the idea is there's something more to consciousness than just detecting the consciousness, uh, detecting the, 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 the object, the tomato, and reacting to it. There's also the, the what it is likeness of the experience. There's the, the felt quality of the experience, the, not just detecting that the tomato is red, but actually experiencing the redness itself. And now this, now we seem to be getting into something much more intangible and hard to describe because this isn't really, it seems a matter of detecting something and reacting to it in the standard pattern of there's, 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 there's me, the observer, there's the, the tomato and there's me perceiving the tomato and you know, then reacting to it. It's just a sort of, well, then we start using words like it's intrinsic. This process somehow has an intrinsic internal aspect to it. It's like something we say, we just do it. Like, and, and then so I say to you, well, what's it like? And you say, well, I can't say it's, it's what redness is like. And I say, well, what, what is your redness like? Is it, I mean, is it the same as the redness that I experience? I mean, we all agree that this, we call this tomato red, but is it producing the same private redness except for those who are colorblind of course <laughs> well certainly if you're colorblind you won't even be able to detect uh, and distinguish it from other things but what if we've both got perfectly good vision and we both classify red things perfectly and distinguish them things of all other colors but maybe this private feel intrinsic feel of the red experience is different from us we can't know because it's there's no way of sharing this it's and it's got no it's 
although it goes along with the functional processes that are occurring in the brain, the processes of sensitivity and reaction, it's supposed to be something more than that. You can't just look at what, describe what the brain is doing and know thereby what this intrinsic feel is like. Now, that's the notion that I think is unhelpful. I don't deny that that sort of talk is doing something. I think, I'm not saying that when we talk about experiencing the feel of the redness, I'm not saying that we're doing, that, that that's just, that we're just talking on, you know, we're just making up words and that, that don't refer to it. There is something happening that we're trying to get a grip on with that notion. But I think we're mischaracterizing it. We're simplifying what is actually a very, very complex process and characterizing it as a pure feel. I think consciousness is always a process. It's a process of sensitivity and reaction. And this idea that there is this just this pure intrinsic feel to it, that's, I think, a misdescription of what's happening. And in a way, it's detaching consciousness from its root of awareness. Because who is aware of this intrinsic feel? As soon as you start to tell a, a story about somebody being aware, some one thing being aware of another and there being a process, you're getting back into the functional talk that's associated with access consciousness. You're supposed to have left that and gone into the world of just pure intrinsic feel. Beautiful. This is beautiful. Having fathomed a little bit the potential definitions of consciousness and you know, I'd like to expand it a little bit before we go to that. Of course, there is meta-consciousness on one level, also being conscious of being conscious. And there is, we can imagine lower consciousness, like feeling emotion or sensing something, detecting something. And we can come back to that. But let's now from here, based on that also, think about reality. And what is reality? There is of course, ultimate reality is kind of a, let's still call it a mystery. You know, one can say it's, you know, some fields of energy, where do they come from? We don't know. It's a mystery. What happens before the Big Bang? It's kind of all the equations go nuts at the, at the you know, 10 minus 10 to the power minus whatever, 44 in time or the Planck scale. You can't know what happens before that. Now, okay, therefore that's kind of, we leave it now as a mystery, but we're postulating about it in a sense, trying to understand what could it be and what makes sense that it could be. And from there build this. So that's the ultimate reality. We leave it aside for a while. But what's reality in our daily living? Do we, are the objects sitting out there by themselves? Or is it that we collapse the wave function and then they localize and like that? And aren't different objects of different appreciation by different observers? You want to say something about this? I have, of course, as you might have seen in the book, an idea about what the answer should be. <laughs> when it comes to physics, I'm... I'm just a lay person. I, my opinion about whether it, the Everett interpretation or the um, Copenhagen, Copenhagen or... interpretation, I'm, I, it's not worth <laughs> asking <Yeah>. me. <laughs> I, I do like Sean Carroll's work on this. I do like um, the, uh, the many worlds, but I, I like it from the perspective of a lay person who has learned a little bit about it, but doesn't have any special authority about that. And I don't really see what I'm interested in as 
having much connection with that. I mean, it's it's true that quantum processes are certainly um, involved in brain activity, but I don't, what I'm thinking about, the way I think about consciousness is as a complex high level process right. of sensitivity and reaction. And I don't think the very fine grained physical processes are terribly relevant to that any more than they are to say digestion or memory or any other biological process in the human body. I think we're talking at a very high level of description here. Yes. And that doesn't mean that something like a notion of consciousness might be usable in other contexts, in more fundamental contexts, but it's not the thing that I'm thinking about really. And I don't, it, to me, it seems that when what's happening down at the fundamental quantum level and what's happening up here at this level of organismic sensitivity and reactivity are too far apart yes. for want to shed much light on the other directly. Of course, they're going to be connected because it's all part of one thing. What I, you, you asked though about the, them, about perception and external uh, and the world around. I, here's, let me, give, let me try and give you how, how I think about reality. I think reality is, is an immensely, immensely complex, think of it as an immensely complex, multifaceted object a huge sort of sparkly globe uh, with millions upon millions upon millions of facets. And you can zoom in and you can zoom out and every day so it's fractal-like as you go in, there's more and more detail as you come in. And there are an infinity of perspe possible perspectives on this reality. And each of us, I suppose, is representing some sort of perspective on it. And the way we characterize that perspective is influenced by all sorts of things, by our biological nature, the way that our brains work, how evolution has designed us to, evolution has designed us to latch onto bits of reality that are gonna keep us alive. Uh, you know, it's taught us to latch onto attacking tigers and to ignore things beyond microscopic things that are not going to, to affect us. So to ignore dark matter or not, we're not sensitive to dark matter because for our evolutionary purposes, it doesn't matter. But more than that, our individual histories personal histories have, have tuned us into more specific aspects of this, depending on how you've been, your, your past experience, your childhood experience, you'll be more sensitive to certain things. And so we've each got a particular take on the world. And we've also, together with that, we've got each got a distinctive reaction to things in the world. So let's take something like uh, tomatoes, red, the, the redness of tomatoes. Colors, certain range of color uh, perceptions, I'm sure you know, incredibly complex, but let's just simplify it and suppose that different colors correspond to different wavelengths. Yeah, 700 nanometer for the red. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, uh, so evolution has tuned us into certain frequencies that are likely to be indicative of survival relevant features of the world around us, you know, colors of, of berries and fruits and this sort of thing, maybe, whatever. So it's tuned us into that. And also that sensitivity is accompanied with a particular sort of reaction. It's not just that we see these colors and they're just like sort of pure painting in the world, just there for us to just you know, idly to say, oh, that's red, that's good. No, each one has a distinctive effect on us. We know this from, from psychological experiments that you know, people don't like to be in a red room for very long. They find it stressful. Certain colors are more calming, certain colors are more stimulating. There are general physiological reactions to color, which are pretty widespread among humans. But they're also much more specific culture relative reactions to color. There's all sorts of associations that you and I have to color as people living in modern Western society, and also particular reactions that you and I have 
the different ones that you and I have, depending on our particular experience. If, I, if, I, if, if tomatoes had always made me violently sick, then I might find that red things create a negative reaction in me. So we're sensitive to bits of the world, very particular aspects of the world, which evolution and our particular developmental history has tuned us into, and those in turn provoke particular sorts of reactions in us. Now, I think we're also sensitive to the nature of those reactions. We don't just have the reactions, we're also sensitive to the way we're reacting. And that I think is what we're gesturing at when we talk about the feel of experience. So when I talk about the feel of redness, what I'm talking about is the way that red things affect me. And that is going to be a hugely complex reaction on all sorts of levels, physiological, psychological, behavioral. The range of psychological reactions is going to be huge. All kinds of subtle changes in the way I, I, I expect to react to, to, the way I react to the thing and the way I'm prepared to react to the next thing. It changes my whole, um, my whole disposition towards the world. Things push me around in different ways and in ways that I'm not explicitly aware of, but which I can sort of sense in a vague way. It's doing that to me. It's doing the red thing to me again. Or it's doing the pain thing to me. It's doing the, the middle sea thing to me again. And what's actually happening here is that I'm reacting in a very characteristic way, a very subjective way to a, a very specific sort of stimulus that I've been tuned into. And I talk, when I talk about what my experience is like, it's phenomenal quality, I'm talking about that. But that isn't something separate from all that my brain is doing, all my embodied brain is doing, the rest of my body and my, it's a complex interaction with the environment, which I'm tracking with this talk of what it's like, because I don't have anything better, that's all I have. It's like talking about solidity, solidity picks out something really useful feature of the world, but it's we shouldn't make it do too much work and say, oh, I, therefore, there is no, therefore, if we zoom down to the, to the fine level, we, we would find that this, there's absolutely no space in between the atoms. No, that's, and similarly, we shouldn't talk of phenomenal properties too seriously and ask us, okay, so how does the brain make them? It doesn't, exactly, doesn't make them. It does things that we describe in those terms. So it's applying this illusionist sort of perspective to the world in general to the mind as well. It's taking it one step further. This is wonderful. And I cannot disagree with any of the things you said. In fact, I agree fully. And I tried actually even to codify a little bit this thing. In 2014, 15, I wrote an article in Consciousness. Consciousness is all there is, was the title of the article and the Journal of Conscious Mathematics and Consciousness. Oh, look at that. And it codifies these in a sense that and there is a reason why I asked for what is reality, of course, not to go to necessarily the quantum mechanical, the quantum mm -hmm. field, the unified field levels and try to bridge it, but just to highlight that reality is different for different observers, which you described beautifully. And that's why I coined the idea of a bit of consciousness, which means a moment, yes, I like that. a moment of awareness, a moment of experience, whatever it is. And the moment of experience is what reality is for that moment. So we have to accept that whether it's universal reality, whether everyone agrees or not, it doesn't really matter in that sense. Let's start with my reality at this moment. So my reality at this moment, what does it involve? It involves some stimulus and it involves some way of looking at the stimulus and some connectedness with that stimulus 
whatever the environment allows, the light shining on that stimulus or the reflection of something or the sound, the vibration and all of that. So reality really can be very personal and is very personal in which you have an observer, a process of observation and an observed, an object, and that is the reality. What we tend to see in general understanding, and this is also has been, of course, a philosophical discussion, this thing in itself, this thing, you know, phenomenal aspect of the thing, you know, all of, all of this has been Kant and others, as you know very well, better than me probably, <laughs> have been discussing. And that what has been missed in this is that the reality is the combination of three factors, observer, process of observation and observed. And this is relative reality and it's the reality, the moments of experience. And these moments of experience, as you beautifully also express, take you from one thing to the other, shapes your brain. You know, if you repeat exposure to something, there are synaptic connections that are strengthened. There are others that are pruned away or reduced. Yeah. And that leads to what I call a mode, a new mode of thinking, a new mode of behaving. And these modes, one after the other, lead to patterns. And the pattern is the anatomy. And the patterns can have networks with them, which is the physiology. We don't need to go to this into, into, into more detail. but. If we go back to consciousness, and that's why I, I have raised these two points, and if we expand the sense of consciousness, as you described it, it's to know, but there is a higher level consciousness, which is to know with a very personal, intimate, subjective feeling, and to know with meta-consciousness, being conscious of being conscious also, but you can also extend this in lower levels and say that any, any sensing, any detecting, and there is where we actually expand the definition of consciousness, is what we are calling consciousness. You know, you might not agree, but oh, you can't call it consciousness, because what I talk about consciousness is that very personal self, I am a self and I know myself and I, that self is experiencing this and I'm conscious of that experience and that is i would call it a higher level of consciousness mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but if we want to say like in the idealistic point of view which i take that there is actually something which is primary consciousness fundamental ultimate reality mm -hmm. and it is that that kind of appears as matter you have to find a mechanism by which consciousness appears as matter mm -hmm where the illusion actually becomes matter as something existing out there. And the reality is that it's the bit of consciousness. It's an observer with a process of observation looking at something that another observer, if you like, that kind of start to create reality. In this case, consciousness can be also, for example, uh, I don't know, a stone reacting to gravity. Now, the stone doesn't say, I am a stone, I am aware of myself, I am conscious. Of course, it doesn't get afraid to fall on the, on the ground because it doesn't have that level of consciousness. But its structure somehow senses, detects gravity, the field, and reacts to it. Again, it's not a conscious reaction, a decision-making is not there, it doesn't have choice. Uh, so it doesn't have all the other components that we call consciousness, 
yet we can extend the definition of consciousness to include such things. And it is only in that way, I feel, that we can have an idealist point of view, because the full idealism, what it misses, including, you know, including the great idealists that we have seen, the gap, as you have well described, of how does it explain anything? So how does it interact with anything? How does the physical appear? And we can sense it and see it, but we sense it and see it from a perspective. And so we go back to these different levels of consciousness or levels of perspectives that we can have, mm -hmm. starting from simple detecting gravity or electromagnetic field to higher consciousness and meta-consciousness and see how this can develop in terms of a cogent theory that doesn't have to invent angels and all kinds of things. So it remains parsimonious mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that it's a field, it's a field, it can be unified field of all the laws of nature mm -hmm. by physics, the super string theory or the M theory or something more they will discover or it could be also a field of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that field of consciousness interacting with itself leads to the phenomena of bits of consciousness, which means observer, observe, process of observation. I'm quite sympathetic with this. What I, what I like, um, I'll, I don't want to disappoint my, my, um, my fans here, <laughs> but um, what, what I like about the way you talk about consciousness and bits of consciousness is that they have a structure. They have this three, uh, um, three component structure, the, the observer, the observed, and the, the process of observation. One thing I would say there is, I think you're missing, I say this with deference, but I think you may be missing something. That process is not just from the observer, it's not just the, the, the observer perceiving the thing, it's also them reacting to it. It's the observed thing evoking a reaction from. So the arrows are going both ways. The observed is being sensitive to properties of the observed and then reacting to it. The two are in a dynamical relation. I think that's very important to not make it seem as if it's going one way as talk of observation suggests that something's just coming from it to you. No, but you're reacting back on it. It's evolving. Maybe that's implicit in what you meant. No, I thank you for highlighting that because that's exactly what I mean, that reality is the three together and that creates a unit. It's not just some observer and the observer is the conscious element and it looks at something outside itself. It's the three together that create that moment of experience. And so the idea that, that, that we can we can analyze everything into moments of interaction of that sort of dynamical interactions of that sort, right up to the complex patterns of sensitivity and reaction that I was talking about in humans, right down to interactions between fundamental uh, particles and below that. Yeah, it's quite the idea that it really, what there is, is this causal flux, like a stream of causal processes that are also interacting and little eddies in that stream. And sometimes the little currents in the stream turn back on themselves and become whirlpools, which are, <laughs> which are animals and organisms and so I like that because it's a dynamical picture of consciousness. And it's, as I said, it's not the phenomenal picture of consciousness. It's a much more dynamical process oriented functional notion of consciousness rather than this one that there's this pure quality that just makes it what it is. So it's the, the picture that I'm rejecting is the idea that there's this dynamical interaction and then there's 
some extra quality just given to it somehow. No extra quality. That's what I don't like. So it's that dualism. No, there's just this complex interaction. Absolutely. And it's not that some part of that interaction generates this extra light coming on. When where would the light come on? It's if the idea is that to have this idea of phenomenal consciousness of the light coming on, you need to have a self, a subject which is distinct from the rest of the world, in whose mind it comes on. Yeah. <laughs> I want to break that down. I don't think there's any metaphysical difference between us and the rest of the world. We are just complex parts of this huge absolutely interacting flux. I agree with this absolutely. The only difference between us is that the starting point, I think. The starting point, you know, for you is physical, for me it's consciousness. But the rest, well, I, I, in terms of the light, it's like, you know, your great colleague, Philip Goff, is panpsychist, and you have great discussions with him. Mm -hmm. And for him, it starts with little bits of conscious, little, you know, proto-consciousness kind of elements. And then you get into the combination problem. How do you combine them to create this? The way I have looked at that and resolved that from experience and from knowledge and some study also with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi about the nature of consciousness mm -hmm. as perceived in the Vedantic culture and the knowledge mm -hmm. and studying it very kind of scientifically, not just because it's a dogma or somebody believes in it, mm -hmm. is that there is that consciousness, the light is there and then manifestation is a hiding quality, which means it's putting a veil on the light and growing and discovering and evolving is unveiling, is mm. revealing, if you like, rather than creating. Mm -hmm. So that is quite a different perspective, even on evolution as being a creation evolution, mm -hmm. uh, rather, you know, of course, it takes us to considerations that are can appear metaphysical and theoretical, mm. but I have found in them answers to, to many questions that make sense without having to invent something new and remaining in that simple paradigm. It's, it's, I find myself, when we get into this, this talk about fundamental reality and, and, and in the world of the unmanifest, I'm, I kind of, I don't know what to think. I just, I just, I don't seem to have any footholds uh, at all there. I think, as you describe it in your book, as a vision, it's attractive. It's, it's. I could certainly, as I read it, I could warn you. I, you know, it's as, as a vision. I, I, I find it congenial. Um, whether I know how to think about this in a way to say it's right or it's right. I just don't know how I would get a grip on saying whether it's right or wrong. And maybe this, maybe you would say there are other ways that you need to, to, to get that knowledge. One thing I did like about it though, I'll say this is that it's, it, I, I expect this has struck a lot of people. That if this is the only world there is, things seem strangely contingent. Why should it be just like this? I mean, there are so many ways in which the world could have been why is it just this way why am i sitting just here right now talking to you with these particular items on my desk in front of me and it just seems absurd that reality should be this particular way rather than any other of the infinite number of ways it could have been who decided that's the way it should be now of course that may that's a very sort of human-centered perspective to ask about it and you know but I, I you do have a very nice picture in your book in which 
there is this world of the unmanifest in which every possibility is present in the unmanifest, every possible way, there's no contingency there. Every, it's, a, it's a plenum of all possibilities. It's, so they're all there in, in the, at the most fundamental level of reality. And this reality is just, this manifest reality is just like sort of one little track through that complex web of possibilities. It's like one little, uh, sort of, I don't know, uh, like a little insect just crawling <laughs> through all these, these possibilities and putting together a particular version of it, but it's no more fundamental than any of the other possibilities. I guess. And I must say, as a vision, I certainly find that congenial. I don't know how to say whether I think it's, I mean, I, I kind of even lose a grip on what it is to say that something so, uh, such a, a description at that level, we verify whether it was true or not in a way, Maybe the question is, is it something to live by? Is it, is it, a, is it a vision to live by? And well, I think you make a, quite a good case for saying that it is, that, uh, that we would be, whether or not we think there are compelling logical arguments for it, it's a vision of reality that, that, that is inspiring. Yeah, it's delightful, Yuri. I mean, you're a great thinker. There is no question <laughs> that you could, in few words, describe even better than I could uh, this actual phenomenon that I describe in the book. And the compelling aspect about it also comes from experience of the transcendent. Yes. You know that there is technologies of consciousness, in my case, transcendental meditation, which allows the individual to go beyond the surface value yes. and experience that field within ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so there are descriptions of higher states of consciousness. There are great saints, great uh, people, you know, you can say they had hallucination, uh, of course, Anil Seth will call it like that. <laughs> Doctor said that it's controlled dream or uh, hallucination or all of that, but it's very real and it's really experienced by millions of people. And the key in it is that it produces changes in the physiology. Yes. It produces changes in behavior. It has been discussed and studied scientifically. It produces changes in society also. And so there are converging aspects, you know, that allow us to say, well, this can have something to do with the reality, the ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. Nobody can prove, you know, it's not something you can put in the Large Hadron Collider and find it. It's very personal, of course, but there is a confluence, a combination of aspects mm. that uh, lead and led me to what you have read in the book and to this description of what reality is. And in a way, does it, does it matter too much what its ultimate status is? Isn't the really important thing what effect it has on people? Beautiful. How people take it. I mean, something bad can happen to you, but you can, how, what its significance for you depends on how you react to it, on how you use it. Beautiful. And these experiences, does it really matter what the fundamental nature is? Suppose they were just hallucinations. If they were hallucinations that produced these, this wonderful enlightening effect. Beautiful. That's, does it, I mean, it's, I think this is one thing that, that I would like to stress about talking about illusions. That I, When I say that phenomenal consciousness is an illusion, I don't mean thereby that it's something bad. I think illusions are wonderful things. I think in a way we live by illusions. Um, we live by poetry and fiction and, 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 and drama. Yes, it's, 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 it's an act, but it's a wonder, it's, 
the, the, the wonder of it lies in the creation of it. The fact that we create these things yeah. and it doesn't matter that what's happening on the stage or what the poet's saying is not literally true that's doesn't matter at all what matters is that it's a wonderful creative act to which we are responding in a wonderfully rich and enlightening way that's it's that process again that interaction that matters then the best poetry isn't the poetry that's most literally accurate in its descriptions of things it's the poetry that, that gives inaccurate descriptions that are enlightening and moving and potent and inspiring absolutely beautiful this is exactly that and it's so beautiful because also uh, you know it has to have an ontological logic it has an epistemological thing but it also can have an effect on ethics, on yes. behavior, on decision making, and explain, you know, why are we so striving, all of us, to survive, you know, if everything was just material and nothing happens, one can ask the question, so what, you know, what does it lead you to? maybe to suicide if you are unhappy with something mm -hmm. would you fight for something else for some other value why would you fight what is the morality that is there is it just a constructivist kind of uh, thing morality or there is there is something that leads us to want to know more mm -hmm. so then the the what you know conatus the telos the meaning of things comes into picture and gives us the reason why we want to know more we want to know everybody wants to know more and that by itself is an indication if we go back to your definition even of consciousness when we discussed it that it is the knowing and more of a personal private knowing that we are calling consciousness but if we extend the definition to knowing knowing anything or sensing anything we feel we always want to know we want to have more, mm -hmm. more experience more knowledge mm -hmm. we protect ourselves we fight for our lives you know we can of course describe this as instincts but even a bacterium fights for itself you know everything wants to in spite of the entropy that is prevalent you have that force of consciousness I would feel to know more and grow more and expand more mm -hmm. and the paradigm that's based on what we just discussed accommodates this very nicely mm -hmm. and that is I feel yet another something to give a little bit credit more from its own angle mm -hmm. to the thinking that we're discussing and of course it's not just in spite of entropy it's in, it's because of entropy the energy that powers us is the free energy that comes from the breaking down of the high energy states of the early universe. It's the unwinding of those very high energy states that is being, I'm not explaining this very well, that is being uh, exploited by evolutionary processes to create us. So um, the two things are two sides of the same thing. And uh, uh, let me say, just say something about determinism, which you, which you discuss in the book. I've never understood why people see it as a threat. You can see it as a threat. You can say, oh, these, everything's pre-programmed. I'm, I'm, I'm constrained. You could say it that way and you could look at it that way. Or you could say all those physical processes that happen according to physical law are the ones that were exploited by evolution to create us. Evolution actually needed those regularities and those processes in, in those chemical processes so that it could latch onto regularities and patterns in them and build structures out of them and exploit that regularity that's the machinery that built us yeah. you can see the same thing as giving you the powers and the abilities and the freedom and the direction and the telos that you have or you can see it as a restriction on that it's neither 
it's what it is. It's how you think about it. it don't, you don't need to say, oh, those processes, those regularities are not really there somehow. How would that help? <laughs> no, you, you exist in virtue of them. Beautiful. They make Beautiful. you free. They what set you free in a way that a stone is not free. So Beautiful. although I'm absolutely with you on undermining crude forms of materialism, I think there's nothing in physics, and I think this is something that comes across clearly in, in your work, that you're a great respecter of, of I mean, you're, you're highly educated scientifically, and you're a great respecter of science and what science tells in the scientific picture. And I see no conflict between that and the image we have of ourselves. We may need to adjust that image a little bit in certain ways. We may need to get rid of the dualism that's implicit, though I think that's something we've built in in the Western tradition anyway. I, I think what I'm fighting against is a certain Western tradition. We need to get rid of that. But there's, there's nothing that we cherish in our conception of ourselves that is incompatible with science. You know, science made that vision possible. The, the world that science describes, the reality that science describes made that vision possible. This is beautiful. It's beautiful to talk to enlightened and knowledge and true seekers of, <laughs> of reality. Yes, I, it's, I'm not uh, sure you know. what our respective um, admirers will make of, of our agreeing like this, because perhaps they might expect us to be to be fighting a good deal more. <laughs> yeah, no, we agree on everything. It's just some small detail which makes a big difference at the end of the day. But it doesn't make a big difference in reality because we do agree, you know, after all, even in the Vedantic knowledge, which is stating very clearly that consciousness is all there is, it does say that Maya is Maya, which is illusion, is the reality of existence. So existence on the surface level is the illusion. And the illusion is to think that we are truly fundamentally different one from the other, whereas the fundamental value is one even between us and the object. That is the illusion. I, 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 I'm totally with that. And I, I think one of the, I, I don't think we should assess a philosophical theory or a scientific theory on the basis of its ethical implications. Although I think they're, they're relevant. Certainly if a, if a view has, could have very um, um, negative ethical implications, then we should be very careful in examining it. But I do think the sort of perspective that I have, I do find it congenial. And, and I do find it ethically congenial because it means that I really dislike this view of ourselves as, as fundamentally isolated from each other, as that our minds are completely private, that there's no way that you can re ever really know my, my mind, ever really know my experience, because it's, it's, it can only be known from the first person perspective. And so you can never really know what my experience of a red tomato is really like, whether it's, whether maybe it's like your experience of something green. I just like that separation of people. And I think that really all there is to know ultimately is how I'm responding to the world. Now, of course, a lot of these responses are happening in, literally inside my skull, and it's very hard for you to detect them and appreciate them. But maybe if you watch me, there'd be subtle signs of how I'm reacting, very subtle signs that if you, if we knew each other for long enough, like a married couple who've been together for 50 years and have observed each other and lived with each other and tuned into each other's frequencies so carefully. I don't think they would any longer be separate, private. They would, they would be a coupled system. And the, I think we, we can break down this apparent separation. And I see resistance to this notion of this dualistic notion of, of a private world of phenomenal consciousness as encouraging that. And so that's one reason I'm, 
I think it's that's one. It's not the reason I think it's true because I think it's true because I think it's the best best, best theoretical approach, but it's one reason that makes me think it's worth caring about it and advocating for it because I think it has good consequences too. Beautiful, brilliant. It's really wonderful. Maybe as a small trick that I used when I when I was young, growing to 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 feel like what is somebody feeling. And if you can, you, well, people can try it even at home or with other people. Look at their facial expression and try to yourself simulate that expression. Mm -hmm. And you will see that you almost feel the same thing and you can feel what they're feeling, mm -hmm. which is very interesting. So by examining others and seeing how they, you know, how they put their face, how they smile or how they frown, and try to emulate that in your own physical face, you will see that your feeling will also mm -hmm. change. So that's just a small thing. Because you're mimicking their response to the world. Mimicking, that's, their, yeah. that's their overt manifestation of the response. And by copying that, you're presumably stimulating some of the, the internal responses that, 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 exactly. that generate. The symbol yes. is the outside, the meaning you can get in the inside. Indeed. Indeed. As Wittgenstein said. It's been a delight to be with you. Absolutely. I look forward maybe to more discussions. The time passed so quickly. <laughs> uh, would you like something else to say that you feel you like to share before we close? Uh, well, I, I'd just like to, to reiterate what you said, that it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And I, I, well, I would like to say this, that it's something that I say about the, the podcast that I do with Philip. Philip and I have very opposed views. But I think we have a productive exchange. We're both respectful of each other's views. And I wouldn't, I just, I would like more people to do this across all areas, provided the, the other person is sincere and honest and coming from a place that they're talking about their own experience of the world, their own perspective on the world. And it'll be different from yours. It's bound to be because they've had a different life from you. They've experienced different aspects of this complex whole. And it may have led them to conclusions that you think are deeply wrong. Uh, but provided they have, they have goodwill and an open mind, engage with them, talk to them, understand how they got to their position. Doesn't mean you have to agree with it, but understand how they got there. Show them how you got to your position and maybe see if you can both integrate the two perspectives that you each have on this complex thing we call reality, because you can both be right about the bit of it that you see. And the more of the whole we can see, the more we can cooperate to get together. And so I uh, thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast, because I guess certainly from the, the stereotype that's presented of my views, you might think that there could be no one who disagreed with you more, but I think we've managed to find a, a lot of agreement. And I think that's, that's the most important thing. Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you very much. It's one world, one unified feeling, and it's a joy to talk to great thinkers like yourself. Thank you very much. All the best. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.